Hey, Podcast Nation, thanks a lot for joining us. Once again, another episode of Uncrushed coming your way. We have a very special guest today. Uh, I'd like to introduce Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is incredible. She is the author of Growth IQ, a book about the 10 paths to business success and the sequences in which to take them. She's currently a thought leader at Salesforce, the CRM that seems to be taking over the planet, where she focuses on growth and innovation. And the National Diversity Council calls Tiffany one of the most powerful and influential <laughs> women in the state of California. Hello, Tiffany. Thank you for being on the oh, show. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? Why do you do it? Why does it matter? And why is it important for everyone to listen? Oh, wow. Okay. All three simultaneously. <laughs> all at the same time. All at the same time. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd say that I have the uh, wonderful pleasure of traveling around the world, meeting all kinds of interesting entrepreneurs and big business and executives and people who are on the path of their career. Yeah. Uh, and it just inspires me every day to, you know, show up and try to make a difference. So this is a great opportunity for me to continue doing the same thing. Yeah, I appreciate that. We, we really love having experts like yourself on the show because I think people have the wrong impression about what it is to be a professional in today's society. So I'm uh, looking forward to all the light that you can shed on that. Where'd you go to school, Tiffany? Uh, so I was born and raised in Hawaii. Wow. So, yeah. That's so, amazing. So I went to uh, a high school by the name of Punahou uh, all the way through. So it was a school that was from kindergarten through 12th. Um, so there was a handful of us. I think there was like 45 of us that was preschool all the way to 12th grade. We were together, but we graduated with 315 people. So over time, you know, we obviously we got we got more students to come in, but uh, an amazing experience for sure. Yeah, definitely different in the educational front. I'd imagine that there's quite a bit of collaboration that goes on between the older kids and the younger kids. Interesting enough, my wife went to a very similar school, but in central Illinois, a little bit of a different setting. Slightly different. <laughs> it's just the ocean that's different. That's all. So I want to I talk about some of the things that you've been praised for in the past a little bit, just to kind of give our audience some more about Tiffany. Tell me how you got started with Growth IQ and what spawned that idea of these 10 paths to success. So I had uh, been fortunate enough through my career, I realized early on that I was pretty good at selling. And so uh, I stumbled into selling technology after selling uh, all kinds of things before that. <laughs> and uh, and once I kind of found my way to technology, it was a great experience for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was challenging. You know, I felt like I was learning something every day. I was yeah. trying to solve really uh, important challenges for businesses. Uh, and it was an opportunity for me to travel and grow and, and grow career-wise as well. And so I started out as an individual contributing sales rep, and then I kind of moved up the ranks mm -hmm. um, and then ended up running sales teams. Uh, and so selling hardware and software and then services. Uh, and then I started getting into marketing. So I had both sales and marketing and then sort of my last job, if you will, on the practicing side, I had sales service and uh, marketing. So it was this amazing opportunity for me to be forward looking uh, towards the customer. Sure. But more importantly, this was in 99 to sort of 2002. Uh, and I was very early in the cloud. So I worked for the U.S.'s largest web hosting company. Uh, we were three or four times the size of Rackspace, which tends to be one, uh, a brand most people know. Yep, very recognizable. Uh, very recognizable. I was a Loquas beta client. I was Constant Contacts beta client. And nice. so really early in selling SaaS and infrastructure as a service, it wasn't called those things then, yeah. but really transitioning comp plans to recurring revenue. And uh, and then I, uh, my last sort of role in the corporate world was at uh, Gateway Computers. I ran a division of Gateway Computers. Okay. And then I left there and ended up being 
being a research analyst at Gartner for a full decade. And, wow. and Gartner is the world's largest analyst and consulting firm for for tech companies as well as for for sort of the CIO type of client. Sure. Uh, and, um, I made it all the way to being research fellow. And so after a decade, I said, you know, what do I want to do next? And Salesforce created a position for me to just continue sort of marrying my practicing expertise with my analyst expertise that I had learned, if you will, uh, and allow me to do a very similar thing here. So it's really a perfect situation for me. It couldn't be happier. You know, the concept of companies creating a position for people, I think, is something that's still relatively rare and unheard of in the broad spectrum when it comes to enterprises. So I think it's so fun to talk about people that create awareness and brands and become subject matter experts so much so that companies that they go and speak with are like, you know what, we have this idea for you. And I I love that concept because I think that it really points to how valuable it is to self-build and create something that's built from you, but much larger than you in the end, right? Salesforce offering you a position that they've created specifically for your expertise is a great example of that. Well, I think it it says two things. One, uh, as an individual, you have to know what it is you even want to do. That's right. Like, you got to start there. <laughs> that can be hard. <laughs> that, which, which, which takes time. Years, you know. Sometimes. And and I'd say that o- over the course of my career, it was a combination of learning kind of what my strengths were. Yeah. Uh, and as a friend of mine, Naomi Simpson says, and what my non-strengths were. Okay. And instead of weaknesses, it's nice. sort of non-strengths. Like that. That's yes. different. Yeah. And so taking those strengths and saying, how do I double down there, mm-hmm. and how do I focus my energy there? Versus trying to focus my energy on things I'm not very good at to try to get better at. Okay. Uh, and once I realized what I was really good at and what I my non-strengths were, then I could start to pivot and take all my time and attention and focus on those things that could um, start to raise my visibility within companies and, and maybe even broader than that. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think until I did that, I was sort of mixed in the masses, right? It was just, I was somebody who was really good at a couple of things, but not a strong enough to do this and not strong yeah. enough to do that, but good at doing this. And and then I said, well, hold on a second. Like, what am I, what am I really good at? Sure. And then how do I manifest or create a situation, you know, where I get to just wake up every day and be totally thrilled at, at what I get to call work. Yeah, I, so I love that you said that. I feel the same way every day when I wake up. I'm very proud of how far I've come and that I'm happy to do what I do. And I think that's the part that a lot of business professionals today miss. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, right? My wife is a forensic accountant. She has a master's in forensic accounting. And when we were at a a session that was being held by the IRS. They were doing a presentation in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I live. And we were sitting in the car and all of these financial experts started parking all around us. We get there early because we don't like to be rushed. And we started seeing them get out of their cars and they were just very ho-hum about walking into this thing that they had to be at. And you could tell just this misery just dripping off of them and I remember her looking at me in the car and saying I never want to be one of those people yeah and I said to her then what are you doing (laughs) so far be it for me to criticize her she does very well very proud of my wife for everything she's accomplished and she does love her job she ended up going a completely different direction with it which I respect immensely so to go back to you becoming an individual contributor you spent all this time learning all these skills and developing this mastermind if you will 
When did you realize that you had become a mountain mover of sorts? Like, how did you get, how did Iron Man get his superpowers, so to speak? So, uh, I, I would say this, going back to what I was just talking about on what was I really strong at and what were my, you yeah. know, my, uh, you know, non-strengths. Uh, <laughs> and I learned my superpowers. And then, then I said, well, what I think it is and what my clients think it is may be two totally different things. Mm. And so I spended, I started spending quite a bit of time listening to the feedback that I was getting. So, uh, you know, I, I was giving a number of keynotes a year and I would get feedback when I would get off stage and it would be both verbal, but it could be via LinkedIn or via Twitter or, you know, via an email. Right. Uh, and I would, and they would start using terms or they would say what stood out for me or, Hey, I saw you last year and I heard what you said and this is what I did and it changed this for me. Yes. And so they started to actually define what my superpowers were, not what I thought my superpowers were. Oh, interesting. Because that's what's important. Right. <laughs> I think being very self-aware of what your strengths are, what your strengths, you know, what your non-strengths are, and then saying, how can I um, take those superpowers and amplify them? So, I, you know, one of them was, uh, I'm a good storyteller. So how do I tell a story? It was you know, your content's really good. Why don't you write a book? It's like, I'm not really a writer. I'm a speaker. Right. So then I had to figure out how do I transcribe my talking cadence and the way I tell a story on stage to actually do it on paper in, you know, 85,000 words. Like that's daunting, right? Absolutely. I I understand (laughs) completely. I, I have a lot of friends that are speakers. They speak all the time. And one of the things that they will say is I don't read a lot. So I find that it would be very hypocritic for me to go write a, it would be very hypocritical for me to go write a book and be like, read my book. And you're like, Oh, did you read my book? No, I don't read. No. (laughs) So I do read. And, and, and that's the second thing I'd say is that I I realized I had to be a constant learner. Yes. That always sort of absorbing content from all directions. So whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book, an Mm -hmm. article, a blog, a tweet, whatever it might be, I'll rat hole myself, you know, right into some topic over the course of a day and I come out of it knowing more. And, and that's the point. As long as I'm staying curious and I'm learning all the time and my, my, my story is shifting and pivoting ever so slightly Mm -hmm. of the way I might give advice or the examples I use is constantly iterating because of all this amazing feedback I get almost in real time. Social media has allowed us to get feedback almost in real time and also things that people don't like. So unpopular opinions, it's, it's, it's unpopular opinions, but it could be that, um, I learned early on that culturally not all stories translate. Mm. So to be very aware of where I was in the world. Okay. American isms. Right. Like student body left means yep. nothing outside the United States. Yeah. Right. And so for those of you listening, it's football term, <laughs> American <laughs> football, college football term. But, you know, ultimately it, it uh, you have to be aware of those things. So if you just sort of show up and go, well, I'm going to, you know, give the same thing that I do a hundred times everywhere, yeah. everywhere then it, it really kind of gives this message that you don't care enough that yep. if you're speaking in front of accountants or lawyers or technology people or marketers or sellers or customer service people that you change the stories that you are much more mindful of the slides that you use and, yep. and the way that you craft a story. And so that is going back to having to know a little bit about a lot. Yep. I'm a generalist. And I'm a specialist in like two categories, right? Gotcha. But the generalist allows me to 
cross and jump between topics very easily and quickly. Yeah. Um, but then you have to know how to frame it in a way that it's not, it's not authoritative. Like I know I've done 10 years of research and here's what I think. It's, you know, I've spoken to a number of people who this is what they do all the time. And yeah. based on what they've said, I framed my position, right? Gotcha. Or sort of my, my take on it. Almost building some credibility behind your submission, right? Like here's what I've done. Here's what I've learned. Here's my submission. Here's my suggestion. And here's why it's credible. And, and, then, you, and then you sort of put it out there. Yeah. Then you got to kind of wait. You have to present it in the right way. And, and, then, and then to your you, point, adapt it to your audience. And then you get it back. Sure. Mm, yes, no, kind of, maybe yeah. not, right? That's right. And so you have to be willing to not believe your own story. You know, you have to be, <laughs> you, ha that. you have to be willing to let people, uh, otherwise then you're not really in it for them. I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in anybody who gives a, gives a speech or even does a podcast like this, that we're taking 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes of someone's life. Yep. And we are using that time. And if you've wasted their time, what a terrible thing to do. Absolutely. You can't make everybody happy, but I would, I would hate it if the majority walked out going, that was a total waste of my time. Yeah. So my goal is to say, was it informative? Did it challenge the way you thought? Did it keep your attention? Mm -hmm. Did it make you think differently about something? Was That's it good. valuable in some way? Do you feel like that was not absolutely a waste of your time? Yeah. And if, if I could do that... <laughs> That's, that's, you know, that's all I service. can ask. I've Absolutely. done the service, yeah. Absolutely. To the community at large. So that said, let's, let's get to the meat of it. I want to talk about burnout because I know that's been a focus point for you. And we did a survey. Uh, we sent out a survey asking how people felt about burnout. And we had 91 respondents. And I'd like to cover some of those responses with you. What were your initial thoughts when you saw the numbers, if you had some that really stood out to you? Well, when I first, uh, you know, made the suggestion that we should go and do this survey, yeah, uh, a lot of it had to do with, I'm just going to go back in my own personal career, sort sure. of, uh, in my twenties, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was sort of selling and marketing, whatever I could kind of get my hands on. On my thirties, I kind of had to grow up and get a real job and, <laughs> move and, out of mom's and, house. and yeah, move out of mom's. <laughs> exactly. I had to move out of mom's house, which was really terrible. Um, and, uh, uh, through my thirties, my goal was make more money get more uh, acknowledgement, sort of more um, sort of status in the business, if you will. So I was a lead, I was a manager, I was a director, I was yeah. a VP, I was, a, you know, Growth. so moving, moving up the ladder, making more money. So in my 30s, that was my goal. Right. And during that time, there was about a three and a half year period where I did not sleep in my bed for seven straight nights for three and a half years. Like I had not slept at home for three, three and a half years for seven straight nights. Yeah. So I was grinding. I was working in Los Angeles. I was commuting to work in uh, Atlanta. So I was turning Monday, Friday. I was home for two days. This is not you know, sustainable. Not sustainable. Um, and so I was absolutely burning out, yeah. right? And I was in the office at seven. I would work until seven. I was in the meeting grind all the time. I was spending no time on myself. I, I had no time to actually do work. Uh, and I wasn't aware that I was actually burning out. 
I just felt like, like, if this is what you're going to do and this, this is what you aspire, this is the life, yeah. right? This is what it is to be a professional, yep. right? And I was a senior vice president of a publicly traded company and I had, you know, I had, I was carrying the load of sales marketing and customer service. Yeah. We were $120 million recurring revenue Goals business. Goals achieved. Goals achieved. <laughs> you know, all the, the CEO was, we had executive meetings on Saturdays. Like, you know, he knew my, you know, my mom's number, my home number, <laughs> my, you know, he, he knew how to find he was me. paging you on your old so, pager. So I was absolutely feel, feeling burnout. Sure. And and the, 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 the day I made the decision to sort of leave corporate America in that kind of contributing role, yes. uh, I had had sort of the lifeblood sucked right out of me. I had nothing left to give. Yeah. And I remember the day very vividly where I got up, I looked in the mirror, I was getting ready to go to work. And all of a sudden the person I saw was like, I wasn't laughing. I wasn't having fun. I hadn't seen my friends. I was just, you know, I was just traveling and I was just grinding. Yeah. And so I said, I have to get off this merry-go-round. Yeah. So part of the reason I actually went to Gartner was I had to get off the merry-go-round. I was an individual contributor. Nobody reported to me and I didn't carry a quota. And it took me about three years to actually unwind my brain on the pace that I was working. Three years. It was about three years, wow. right? Because I was... That's quite know, some time. It was, you know, because it was like... I felt like oh, this is the pace I need to work. Yeah. And, and even when I was in the middle of it, halfway through that 10 years, people would be like, I don't know how you produce as much as you produce in the time that you produce it. And, and I learned that I was very efficient and effective with my time. Yeah. But I got my weekends back. I got my life back. I sort of re-injected myself into my family and my yeah. friends and, you know, all of those things. That's good. And so uh, once that started to happen, then I kind of started to find my way onto what I wanted to do next. But I really had to unwind a lot of habits that I had, sort of formed over time. And I'm not saying that it took a three full years for me to even kind of wake back up. It was like six months later, one thing would peel off. Six months later, two or three more things would peel sure. off. You know what I'm saying? The layers. The layers would peel away. To It took me about three years to where I woke up one day and I went, okay, you know, sort of what do I, I want to do? What do I want to do next? So, you know, when I, when uh, you guys reached out and we, we started talking about this specifically in the sales world, I think it's a completely underrepresented topic for people who carry a quota for a living. Absolutely. That, you know, if we're not selling anything, the business goes out of business. And so the life of a salesperson is the responsibility of, I have to sell, I have to bring money in the door. And if I don't, people are going to lose their jobs. I might lose my job. Uh, and it's 24 seven. And customers, we have trained customers over time that no matter when they page us, call us, or email us as salespeople, yep. we answer. So it interrupts our day, our weekends, our family time, mm -hmm. because we're constantly worried about that deal coming in. Have I responded in time? If I don't respond in time, will my client go somewhere else? Uh, and so that responsibility is a heavy burden, I think. And, um, and, and, and I think I missed a tremendous opportunity as a sales leader to actually be aware of the grind I was then putting on my teams. Because right? you because, were leading that example. Because I was leading the example, um, number one. Um, but number two, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sort of injecting that, we're going to take an hour, we're going to go do something fun, like yeah. I'm going to break the grind. Like disconnect for like a moment. Disconnect for a moment. And this is long before smartphones. And I mean, we barely yeah. had Palm Pilots and Blackberries. Blackberries, yeah, yeah sure. Pagers, you know, this is so, I can't even imagine if I was still doing what I was doing in today's world with the 24 seven always on because already, you know, the balance now I have, I'm, I've, I'm much more mindful. 
uh, but I could get very caught in it again if I had to go back to doing that role. It's an easy thing to do, and I think people post about it often. Um, I, tell, I say this best practice pretty regularly now, but just based on this survey, I'm glad that I do it. Uh, I fall right into the prime demographic of this survey. My A, I'm 37. Uh, it seems the highest percentage uh, of, of participation for us was between 35 and 44. Uh, and then the role was highest percentage, again, inside sales and outside sales. That's me. Uh, and then for the sales experience, the, the 50 plus is 10, 10 or more years. And I fall right into all of those primary demographics. Uh, and that's right when you're starting to put your foot on the gas, Right. You know, you've been selling, like, I couldn't have expected in my 20s to be climbing, right? Yeah. It's different now, um, I think, in many ways. Because, sure. you know, I've said, like, in my 20s, didn't know what I wanted to do. In my 30s, it was all about ma- money and sort of title. Mm-hmm. In my 40s, it was really about getting my life back and what did I want to do next. Yeah. And now I'm in my 50s. I'm older than you. Um, uh, I'm 53, and it was all about how do I give back. Nice. And so I love that progression. That was my progression. But I, I posted that on LinkedIn and Twitter maybe 18 months ago. I, it was probably one of the most like commented and liked and yeah. shared uh, you know, posts that I had done. And lots of people came back and go, Well, I had a child in my 20s or I got married in my 20s, so theirs was a the different timing. Yeah. Right. And the path and was different. The path was different, but I think everyone understood that. That where some people now, millennials are much more oriented towards giving back earlier um, than maybe my generation was, don't know, but I can only say that that was my path. And, and I wonder what kind of leader and manager I would be if I could go back into my 30s, knowing what I know now. And having all the tools that we currently have. And having all the tools we have now, yeah. you know, in order to help my been, people not burn out. Would have been a different game indeed for you, I'm sure. Uh, who knows, right? Who knows, but, yeah. Only the people who worked for me could tell you whether it would be better or worse. I don't know. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about stress right now because that was the focus of our survey is like at what point do people feel the, enough stress to feel like they are completely spent, just burnt out? And I thought the results were really interesting because they sort of varied in age. But it was on the high end no matter the age group and no matter the role. It was still on the high end. So there seems to be a heavy correlation between sales, stress, and burnout in general, the role itself tends to be one of the more stressful roles when you're measuring on a scale of one to 10, how stressful are you? We didn't have anybody that put less than a five in there, no matter the age. So tell us a little bit about why you think sales is the most stressful industry today, outside of being a quota carrying individual with that sense of pressure. Do you think there's an expectation of perfection? Like, the first month you for quarter three might not look as good as the second month of quarter three. And then there's that comparison and what did I do wrong? And I think there's a self-reflection there that companies tend to encourage that's not very healthy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd say, you know, with sales, I kind of go back to what I was just saying a minute ago. Uh, you know, if you are a sales rep, the pressure and stress you feel is almost daily because mm. it's kind of like, what did you do for me? today. What have you done for me lately? Yes. A la Janet Jackson, right? I mean, ultimately you get rejected every time you pick up the phone and it's a cold call. Every time you say, so you have to deal with the rejection all the time. So you better have sort of thick skin and know how to deal with rejection. Number one. Number two, you're not going to win every deal. I mean, the stats out now um, are some sort of little north of 50% of people will miss quota this year. Mm. 
50%. Wow. And 66% of their time is spent on non-selling activities. Yeah. So they're inefficient and they're missing quota. Doing things like managing data and prospecting and not doing the selling part of it. And they're not selling, right? Yeah. And so you're like, you're stressed because like, I just want to be selling. I got to do all this other stuff. Management is making me do that. I've been rejected 99 times today. Yeah. Like, I just need one person to just say yes for a meeting for me. And so it's the constant reassurance that personally, like you've got to have the fortitude to just get up every day and go, I'm going to face this day no matter what happens. Yeah. And in sales, there's also the challenge of sometimes it's a very low base pay, like minimum wage pay. Yeah. And then you have this upside on the quota. And you know, if you're not killing the deal and you're not making quota, you're not going to make your bills. That's right. And some industries like real estate, you make no money if you sell nothing at all. So some, I think the average amount of realtors across the country sell like an average of like 1.5 homes a year. Yep. Yeah. It's very low. It's very low. And so that means, you know, you, you always hear about the high performers, but the mass of people sell a home or two all year, which means how do you live? Right. 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 And so if you have children, you're a single parent or you're the breadwinner in the household. Or you have student loans. You have student loans. I mean, so I think the stress comes with, look, there's, there's high stress, high reward. There's high commitment. You know, there's high reward. There's, you got to have your big girl, big boy pants on every single day. That's right. There's high reward. Um, and the sky is the limit. You know, you can you can earn a lot of money selling uh, if you're really good at it, um, and you you can be okay at it, and and it can still be stressful. So I think you know it requires a very specific kind of personality. I was an athlete my whole life, and I think that that really shaped me into being able to be competitive. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, lose with with you know my head held high, win with humility. You know, coaches, teams, individual right. contributor. Like I learned all those skills. I think it's a great place to find uh, salespeople. <laughs> like <laughs> athletes are a great place. Yeah. Um, and, and really good communicators. But, you know, if, if you have, uh, if you don't like rejection, um, and you don't like the uncertainty of what you're going to earn or not your earn sales is probably not for you. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's an expectation that salespeople have to have coming into the role to know that they're going to have to work, but how much are they going to have to work? And what is the relationship between marketing and sales typically hinges on that kind of number. So to give you a good example, on our survey here, 67 respondents said that they often worked extra long hours way above and beyond with the contracted hours. I want to know what that looks like for salespeople at a mass level. Like 67% is not peanuts. Out of, out of the 91, that is way over the mark for half. If we're to work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, fine. I feel like that's relatively normal. I'm happy to put in an extra hour or two a day to network and build prospect and pipeline. I feel like that's a healthy activity to do. And in today's society, in today's technological world, we don't have the burden of having to be at the office and uh, sitting at our desk because that's where the good internet is, right? Like right. we all have good internet. We all have mobile devices. I have a little tiny computer in my pocket that I can take the bus home and spend that hour on the bus networking and having conversations with people. So to some extent, as you said, you got to put those big boy pants on, big girl pants on, and realize that this is the role you signed up for and the sacrifices that you make 
are what yields that quota at the end of the month so that you can consistently hit those goals so that you can find that time after you hit that goal to, to take to yourself. So if you're a salesperson, I know a lot of salespeople that will take time off at the end of their month. I find that to be poor planning. I think salespeople were smarter. They would take it at the beginning of the month so they could come back strong at the beginning of the month after a couple days off, feeling refreshed and really hammer home the effectiveness that they can deliver for their prospects. So what are your thoughts on the percentage of people, 67%, going above and beyond and feeling burnt out as a result of working too much? Well, it goes back to what I was saying a little while ago. I think sales is one of those professions. It's almost like a doctor. Mm. Like you're on call 24-7. And so 67% of that, I'm, I, you know, if I were to really you know, go reach out and ask those people, it may be because you answered a client text message or email or or phone call at eight o'clock on a Thursday night, because that's when they could get back to you because they're working hard. Right. And then they reach out to you and they want you to be available. So sometimes we have to be as available as our clients want us to be available. That's right. Okay. So part of that is this unrealistic expectation that everyone wants an instantaneous response. And we've also trained our clients to do that. And if we don't do it, we worry that the risk would be they'd go somewhere else. Mm. But I'd say I almost don't agree with the do it at the beginning of the month, do it at the end of the month. Um, I think this is where if I could go back to my sales leadership role would be how do I help every day? Because I think that the grind um, over time, you Mm -hmm. just start to become less effective. You, You know, you're tired. You're not paying attention in meetings. You're not following up. The balls get dropped. The I don't quote feel like taking right. notes today. <laughs> I don't, whatever it might be, right? Yeah. Because you're just you're just burnt out, right? And so, you know, what's a way that you can do where you carve an hour out a day to just do things that you want to do? You know, so it could be listening to a podcast, it could be going for a walk, it could be, you know, talking with a coach or a mentor, or it could be something go that you do. Go to the gym do. at lunch. Go to the gym at lunch, whatever it might be. But I think that that recharge uh, is is really important because yeah. um, just adding another hour on the day and then saying, it's okay, I'll put it in the bank. At right. the end of the month, taking three days is never going to make up for the two hours a day over the course of the 20 days, which sure. is 60 hours over the course of a month that you've spent. You've showed up late, you haven't had dinner with your family, you're not yeah. doing things on weekends. Missed your daughter's recital. There's and it goes back li- to what I was saying. It goes yeah. back to what I was saying that in my 30s, you know, it was just, I was, I was, there we'll was no go. candle left by the time I got to, you know, 40. There yeah. was sort of no candle left. I'd burnt it on both ends. And so, you know, I, I would say that um, finding a way to take the time, and this goes to the sales managers and sales leaders that are listening. Sure. That kind of what I said, would I be a different manager today knowing what I know and understanding sort of the, the, the power that burnout has on the effectiveness of the team and keeping people motivated and motivated and inspired to do what I need them to do every day yeah. versus just letting them grind. And I'm hitting them going 50% of you're going to miss your quota. 60% of your time is spent on non-selling. Go, 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 go. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I'd say that uh, uh, the sales managers have a responsibility to make sure that they're paying attention if their team or an individual is appearing to be burned out where they're not as talkative as they normally are, or yeah. their, their emails are late, or you can see what time they're sending you emails mm-hmm. at 10, 11, 12, <clears throat> 2 o'clock in the morning. Like that's a behavior you need to stop and say, hey, I appreciate your work in this hard, but I don't ever want to see an email from you at 2 o'clock in the morning, right? right? Um, and that's the manager's responsibility to not reward that behavior, to go, thank you for getting that to me on time. Sure. It's like, instead of just saying, look, I see it came at 2 in the morning, 
which leads me to believe you didn't get a chance to do it. So what can I carve off your plate so that you could focus on this? Uh, because I don't want you to be doing it at two o'clock in the morning, right? That's interesting. That's uh, interesting. So I, I have uh, two questions. Those habits of not feeling like they're constantly tethered to, you know, phone, email, text, social media. Um, another could be where, like that example, where the manager is really aware of when a behavior moves outside of that time, where you start to notice that somebody's behavior is like they're a little more, you know, relaxed or tired, or they're showing up late to meetings, or they're starting to really drop the ball, that it's the role of the manager to then step up and say, hey, let me pull you aside. Like, I care about you. I want to make sure you're healthy and everything's okay. Right. It's not just about the quota. That's right. Um, we need to do both. But you need to take care of it. So what can I do to help take some of this off your plate? And, and I think that that's what I didn't do as a sales manager mm. um, when I was just sort of pushing and grinding and pushing and grinding. Um, I like to have fun. It's not like, you know, I, I like to have fun. And I, I not I, a stickler, not a stickler, you know, but I wanted to hit numbers. And when pressure rolled downhill to me, <laughs> you know, I would I, what I would buffer. 50% of it, yeah. and I'd only give them 50% of it, right. which might be a lot. And some people don't take that kind of pressure well. Indeed. And other people thrive in that kind of pressure. Yep. And so once again, as a manager, not everyone is the same. Not everyone is is going to respond. Yeah, I'm fond of saying that not everyone likes to be coached the same. You can't have a blanket approach when you're dealing with a team. Um, you can have blanket statements. You can have blanket meetings. You can have informative meetings where you tell people what's happening and changes that are taking place as a unit. But when it comes to individual coaching, there are no processes for an individual. It just takes relationship building and knowing, as you said earlier, what someone's strengths and non-strengths are so that you can leverage that, that data, that knowledge that you've accumulated over time about that individual in order to be effective. And I like that approach because I think it's very real and I think it's much more impactful. Uh, if you look at people coming out of college at 24 years old, 23 years old, I'm looking at a group of kids that if you started them at $35,000, $40,000 a year plus commission, it'd be more money than they made in their entire college career working part-time jobs. So it's a good opportunity for them to spend a year underneath you as a sales professional, as a leader, cutting their teeth, learning the ropes, figuring out how to do this, right? Have that great conversation and really connect with people and dial in what it is to be a professional in an industry that is constantly growing and ever-changing. So what, what I see is that we have two conflicting pieces of data. One, everybody seems to be hyper-stressed. Two, they're afraid to come forward and say something for fear of the stigma that exists when you're dealing with mental health issues like burnout or anxiety, right? That stigma can be daunting sometimes. And yet 71% record report that their company has resources available to them to help them cope with this. So it's interesting to me that such a high percentage reports that they feel that way, but yet another percentage reports, no, I don't want to say anything because I just have to keep trying harder. I just have to keep grinding. I just have to keep going. Stay the course, right? I say this a lot. But why have that feeling and have that resource and not take advantage of it? So uh, I think that's a great question because um, it's one, I wonder if in my 30s, if there had been a resource, there wasn't, but mm. had there been one, if I would have walked in. Do you don't, think you would have? I don't know. 
I don't know. Because in retrospect, I think I realized how burnt out I was. Yeah. When I was in it. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I was in it. Like, you know, I was like, yeah. what? Okay. No way, I'm doing awesome. Well, it's Monday. Like, I'm at the office at seven. I leave it. I mean, you know what I mean? I had yeah. a complete routine. And, right. and my EA at the time, Julie, pretty much managed my life. Um, and I, she would just point to me and where I needed to go and what meeting I needed to go into and what yeah. I needed to do. And without her, I would have completely, the wheels would have fallen off. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I would have Julie, gone. Julie, did you say Julie? Julie, yeah. Shout out to you, Julie. Yeah, you made shout it out to you, Julie. You made it happen. You did. You totally, <laughs> totally made it happen. No one and, can do it alone. And, and anybody who knows me during that time will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and so uh, she was awesome. Uh, um, but I, I would say, I don't know if I would have. And so... I think that that today we're in a different time. Yeah. I think I think the the uh, leader who also has a high empathy quotient. Amen. There it is. Is really powerful. Yep. So you could be a really good leader, but if you have no empathy, it's just people aren't going to get in that boat and go on this journey with you. Yeah. And so you know, I would say going back to strengths and non-strengths. If you are listening and you know that you do not have a high empathy quotient, yeah. like I would go as a leader and go to those help professionals, you know, the resources you have at work and go, look, this is a non-strength for me. I'm sort of, I don't know how to approach people on this. So what I'd like to do is once a month, set up a time where my team comes in for 15 minutes yeah, and you just do a touch base with them. And then if there's anything I need to to know, then take, then we'll have a meeting at the end of that. And you can tell me, here are the things I should look out for, whatever, so that you can help me because I'm not as aware, or I don't know what to do with that kind of situation. Yeah. And I may even learn along the way that maybe I want to talk to somebody too. Right. right? Um, but if you know, that's a non-strength of yours, then it's your responsibility as a manager of a team of people who rely on you to make sure that they're okay every single day, that you make the first step. Yeah. And if you do it, then you can give it as an example. So I went to go talk to, you know, Molly or Bob, you know, we have this resource and I was feeling totally burnt out. Like last week kicked my ass and I just didn't know what to do to sort of get my head above water. And so I went and talked to her. She gave me these three things. How many of you feel like that? Like something that simple, but you've said, I feel it. I've done this. It's okay. And you open it up. They may not, and not everyone will raise their hand and go, Oh God, I can talk about it now. I mean, <laughs> oh, that, thank you. Yeah. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but I think setting up that time where you just do it, where every month everyone has to go in for a 15 minute touch base and I'm going to leave it to you for your responsibility, but you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do it. Yeah. And, um, maybe over time you'll stop talking about like the kids and sports and whatever, and you may open up to something and they know how to get you to open up they if do. needed. And so, you know, as a manager, you have to set the example, but this has everything to do um, with empathy and going back to, if it's a non-strength of yours, then lean on the people who this is what they do for a living, but do not put your head in the sand and act like it's not happening. If 67% of the people on the survey say that they're feeling stressed, 67% of your team is feeling stressed. That's right. If they feel like they don't, uh, you know, that it's going to hinder their career, then your team is feeling that you are not immune to the fact that people are feeling burnt out, stressed and need help. That's right. So don't fall into that trap. If you're a leader out there listening to this, don't fall into that trap of thinking that's not me. You'll never know until you talk to your team about it and be open about what your expectations are. Uh, we had a lot of really interesting comments on the survey that came through. Uh, and a lot of people were saying they felt like burnout was a real threat. But specifically in the service industry, I saw a tweet. Uh, you were on the news. Uh, what show was it that you were on where you were talking about 
customer service in general and how it's one of the most stressful industries to be in today. Um, you had mentioned something about why customer service is such a stressful environment and why people that are in customer service deal with interesting people, for lack of better phrasing. I think you said it much better than I did just now. Uh, but as somebody that's in sales, it's sort of hand in hand with customer service, right? I, I know a lot of salespeople that call themselves customer service. I know a lot of customer service people that say they're in sales, right? It's sort of one in the same in today's world. Um, how, what kind of mechanisms do you recommend for salespeople that are, as you said earlier, constantly feeling that sense of rejection and unable to catch up no matter what they do because there's just so much no out there, right? We're programmed now to, to, to decline a new connection because we're afraid that it might, to your point earlier, right. waste our time. Right. And our time is so valuable and crucial to our success, our team's success. I would rather give my time to my team than I would a prospect on some days because I feel it would be more beneficial for the team than my pocketbook dealing with this prospect today. How do you find that line in the sand, so to speak? For customer service specifically? Yeah, specifically customer yeah. service. So uh, there was a fantastic article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so when depends on when this airs, but uh, I'm sure we can dig it up. But it literally was like customer service is almost the new therapy. Oh, tell me more about that. Because it was really customers call and just sort of go... I can't, you know, I can't get a hold of my daughter. I don't know how to like long distance call. Can you step me through this, yeah. you know, or, oh my God, this didn't fix or this didn't get work or it came and it was, told, you know, and they're just kind of throwing up a problem on you. Mm -hmm. And it's your job to kind of like, especially if they're really <laughs> angry, calm them down yeah. and, and help them solve a problem. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> and in some organizations, the example that was used in uh, was Zappos, was how long that customer service organization, customer success organization, will stay on the phone with the customer. And uh, that is very different than some organizations that say you can only be on the line with a customer for two minutes, three mm -hmm. minutes, four minutes. They view it as a cost center. And it's just grinding in a very similar way to sales. Like, how many people did you call? How many calls did you take? How much revenue did you sell? How much yeah. revenue did you save? How many, how many phone calls did you make? How many did you answer? You know, it's very attached to a metric. Right. On the sales side, it's rejection. On the customer service side, it's just... Pissed off customers right. usually, right? So those are two very stressful situations. Indeed. And so I, I would say on both fronts, like taking that time that you know in customer service, the people rarely call and go, I just wanted to say how fantastic your product was <laughs> and that I love you today. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, just calling to any, give you any customer advice. service people or customer <laughs> success people that hear that, please let us know because yeah. in the mean of 100 calls you get, how many tell you they love you and how many tell you like you suck? It's, it's probably zero. I think the, stat, the, the <laughs> thing that people hear all the time is like, do a great job and someone tells 10 people. Do a bad job and someone tweets it. Right. <laughs> And, and you have and you have people listening in on your phone calls, yep. judging you on how you've handled you yeah. know, a really irate customer. You can have zero emotion. Like all of the things that's very difficult, I think customer service is equally, equally tough. And to your point, you know, I, I often say that customer service is the new sales force, two words, uh, in the future because they have this ability to upsell and cross-sell and that's they're right. nurturing the existing base of customers you yeah. have. So hence customer success, right, yeah. versus Amen. sales. But those two things together. And so uh, that goes to, to the question that was asked earlier about this is where I really think the CEO plays a role. Right. Is what is the, what is the feeling and approach that the company has of the role of customer service? Yeah. A cost center that is just a place where 
all stuff rolls downhill and it ends up in that bucket. Yep. And salespeople are often guilty of selling things, tossing it over the fence and letting customer service deal with it. That's, That's true. also not fair. That is true. Right. And so bringing those two things together needs to be this sort of uh, view of it's not only for the customer's benefit, but it's just for the health of the business. I mean, you want yeah. people to work together. That's right. Collaboration is key. And you don't just collaborate internally. You collaborate with your prospects and customers, too. I've been noted for saying for many years now, it used to be enough to make a sale. It really did. It used to be enough. I used to sell one-time sales. We were doing credit cards and cruise tickets. So we would literally just call people and say, hey, thanks for signing up for this awesome Discover card. We'd like to offer you a cruise at this rate. And people would say yes or no. Yep. And I'll tell you the truth. You'd make a sale and you'd go, I'm awesome. And that was the end of the conversation. You'd never had to talk to that person again. They bought the, t the tickets from you. Thank you so much for your business. Then they call up. They call customer service and, and go, this guy, <laughs> dude, whatever his name was, James, John, yeah. Jerry, whatever, yeah. sold me something I don't even want. I don't even want. I woke as up matter today, of fact, my mind. As a matter of fact, I don't even think I talked to him. It wasn't really me. <laughs> this charge hit my credit card. It wasn't even me. It wasn't even me. I didn't so now it's your me. problem, not my problem. <laughs> and, right. and I'm just going to keep saying, let me talk to your supervisor. Let me talk to your supervisor. Yeah. Let me talk to your supervisor. Yeah. So then it gets all the way to the top supervisor who then ends up giving the credit. And then all of a sudden it starts rolling down. And then it goes back to me, the customer service agent, who was just doing my job. That's right. Because James, John, Jerry, whoever, yeah. sold something that this customer didn't want. When yeah. you're like, that's not what happened. Right. It was never a good sale to begin with, it was right? Never, right. Yeah. Or you're like, wait a second, she was all thrilled. What happened what in happened? the 12-hour yeah. period? Her husband right? got home and changed her mind for her, what, right? Uh, you like, know, so, <laughs> so then someone's like, well, let me go listen to the recording. Yeah. Now it's like, well, let me take that little hair and I'm going to split it 900 ways and I'm going to pick at everything you did incorrectly or That's correctly, right. Right? right? Which goes back to it's stressful, I'm burnt, I don't feel appreciated, yeah. I have no sort of outlet, no one's looking out for me, yep. like... Changes everything about the way you perform every day. Every day, right? Because every, every day as a salesperson, that's right. Every day as a customer service rep, not every day as a marketer, not every day as a product manager, yeah. not every day as someone in HR or legal or whatever else in the company, yeah. but every day in sales and every day in customer service, you are judged. Yeah. A hundred times. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I've said all the time that every sales cycle looks pretty much the same, right? We like to put little tiny things inside of it that are our own little like, oh, this helps and that helps. But I think it's all based on six primary goals, right? Uh, content is the road to connection. Connection leads to conversation. That conversation should grow into a relationship or some people call this trust. Once you have that, you should have no problem asking for an opportunity. And the law of averages says the more opportunities we have, the more sales we make. And it's not enough to just make that sale anymore. We have to then maintain that relationship for 365 days and be sure that it's a valuable one for our person, our customer, our prospect. And that way, they feel like they're connected to us. It's not enough to just find the value. We have to also be connected to our audience and to the people that are purchasing our products every day, every year, every quarter. So for a salesperson that's out there celebrating that demo, stop it. That demo is just the beginning. It's a seed that you've planted in the hopes that it will survive and grow into a giant oak one day. So I, I would say that um, here is where the rubber meets the road for me. Okay. Is that today the metrics that are tr used to track sales performance and customer service performance are actually leading those roles to the road of burnout. Mm. Did you call 100 people? 
Did you answer 100 calls? Did you hit your quota? Yeah. Did you save this many sales? Right? The metric is driving this constant hamster wheel law of averages. Yeah. If I talk to 100 people, 10 will make a meeting, right. two will book by. How many doors do I need to knock on? How many doors? Yeah. <laughs> so this is where leaders, CEOs, you know, who are listening to this, who go, what, what, what could I, what wood could I put behind this arrow to, to try to start to make some change? So right. one was giving the opportunity for people to have a place to go when they're feeling burnt out and making it part of the role, mm. right? That you need to go 15 minutes a month or half hour a month, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And if you don't have someone in house, have someone come in for that day or two that you bring in just for your team. Like do not use the excuse that there's no one in house, go to HR, work it out. On the flip of it is uh, putting metrics in place that are much more relationship-oriented. Yes. So following your sort of example that you just gave. So many companies in, in research we've done at Salesforce has been trying to flip sales and customer service metrics to be much more uh, customer-oriented. So yep. it could be net promoter score. It could be customer satisfaction. It could be churn rates. It could be all of these leading indicators that are more relationship-based and not just the hardcore metrics that, in my opinion, just drive that behavior to, yeah. if I call 100 people, 10 will call me, 2 will la, la, la. That's right. You know, I show up to work, I'm in customer service, oh my God, I'm going to take 320 calls today on average, because I've done that for the last 12 months. And of the 320, 319 of them are going to yell at me. <laughs> like, I can't wait to go to work. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Uh, Actually, I'm feeling kind of sick. <laughs> I got it. Right? And so what happens when people are grinding at work? They call in sick. They so, do. Okay. So think about how could you adjust some of the metrics to actually give people, your people in sales and, and customer service, sort of a little bit of breathing room to, to, to make those connections and have it be as important, if not more important, than the hardcore metrics. Like for a seller, I don't care if you call 100 people or 1,000 people. I just need you to sell. So if you only need to sell 10 and she needs to sell, call 20 and yes. he needs to call 50, but I just, that, I just need you to be you, Yeah. lean in on your strengths, go get the business done, right? Yeah. And for me to micromanage you on both accounts on metrics, I think uh, leads us down this path of, I, I'm just constantly chasing approval from my managers. Yep. I'm the check on the box that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And more importantly, I'm hitting my numbers. What bothers me as a leader about metrics-based selling practices is that when you assign that metric, the salesperson is going to hit that goal. But that doesn't mean you're going to see results as a leader. So oftentimes you see these goals consistently being hit. No, I made 60 calls today. I sent 40 emails. I had 10 cold calls. I added 15 people to my cadences. Pick, pick a, a, a metric that you'd like to focus on. And then at the end of the month, no demos have been set. No meetings have been set. No closes have happened. And that leader will still come out of their office and go, hey, where's all the success? And that sales representative will turn and go, I don't know, but I met all your metrics. That's because I, like I said, 66% of the time is spent on non-selling. Yeah. And so unfortunately, this goes back to the leaders. The leaders need to rethink the metrics. Uh, this is a whole nother podcast, but oh. the, oh, leaders, the, the, leaders, <laughs> the leaders need to rethink the metrics yeah. um, and really for the output, not the input, but the output. Sure. Because for example, I might be really good at cold calling. You might be really good at emails, mm -hmm. but you want me to do 50 emails and you to do 50 phone calls. Right. And I would rather do, right? 
I'm much better at doing this. You're much better at doing that. The end result is I still, we set three demos. So I don't care how you do it. LinkedIn, social, phone call, email. We need three demos. That's the output I need. And if you're not setting the demos, then I can peel back and go, well, what are you doing? Are you calling? Are you emailing? Like, maybe that's not for you. Let's find another way. So what is it? But if the output, it should really be about the output. And, and, you know, while I obviously work for a CRM company, um, you know, salespeople and customer service agents don't wake up every day and go, I can't wait to data enter. It's sort of not a goal of ours. Um, so we have to find ways to start to use technology in different ways, using machine learning and artificial intelligence to take some of those tasks off the plate of both of those roles, yes. allowing them to free up so that intelligence can tell me, hey, what? Tiffany does much better when she calls than when she emails. James is much better when he emails than when he calls. So James, you email, I call, Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen, <laughs> yeah, right? right? But as a manager, if going back to your comment about you can't coach everyone the same. Yeah. Not everyone's a running back. Not everyone's a kicker. Not everyone's a quarterback. Not everyone's a lineman. Yep. It has to be a team and everyone's playing their roles. So I think it's important, um, you know, as a leader, not only to have this kind of empathy quotient, uh, but also really using all the data that we have now at our disposal to make very different decisions about how you grow. And that, and, and, and that was really sort of the genesis of one of your very first questions on growth IQ. It was how do we reframe and put, uh, you know, a modern twist on the way businesses have grown. It was really being powered by all this stuff we have now, social, mobile, cloud, big data, and then, you know, AI, IoT, machine learning, you know, sort of the fourth yeah. industrial revolution all sort of, you know, uh, rolled up. Rolled up into one. I agree. I And and for those of you out here listening to this, I, I think that it's supposed to be fun. Don't forget, it's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to enjoy what you do every day when you get up in the morning. And if you don't, you should change what you do because life is too short to wake up miserable every day. And I, I can't stress that enough to those salespeople out there that struggle with why am I why am I failing or why am I feeling the way that I feel? It is easy to fall into that. Um, Tiffany, tell everybody how they can reach you and uh, what the best way to to consume your content and learn from you is. Oh, uh, we do have to talk about your podcast before you leave. Okay, so I have a podcast <laughs> called What's Next. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I am pretty active on social media. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, I'm pretty responsive. Um, but, but, you know, ultimately, I, I'm always looking for feedback. So I'd love to hear sort of what resonated with you from this conversation. What you didn't agree with is really good. That's really good content for me to hear what you didn't agree with. Because this is all about, you know, trying to learn how uh, I have this uh, wonderful opportunity to have a platform to share these stories. And yeah. so I'd rather share stories that resonate with people than share stories that people, you know, completely turn off to. So, yeah. So for me, the, the best feedback I can give you is that I think there is a comfortable balance between KPIs and relationship based selling. We just have to find it. It's there. I know it's there because I ride that fence every day. I do stuff like this, and yet I'm an SDR at heart. I will always be an SDR. My heart belongs to the hunt is what I say. Uh, New business, new conversations is my addiction. And yet, because I film with with my producer, Grant Green, every day, I meet awesome people like you. I create amazing content and this awesome opportunity. I still go over there to my laptop and I still pick up the phone and dial 15 people in the next hour and a half if I have to. I still send 20 cold emails. I still use 
AI to see what is happening with my emails after I send them and what the open rates are so that I can gauge interest. I still do all the things that SDRs have to do. And I love my job. And I feel stressed out because I love my job. I've, I've said in many meetings before that the jobs sometimes you want to quit are the best ones. Well, you know, well I, I, I'd say this. I'd say, you know, for those of you listening and, and you say, wow, you know, I, maybe I'm not so happy at my job. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd like to be an SDR. Maybe I'd like to get in marketing or maybe I'd like to get in customer service. Um, I did a, uh, I did a uh, webinar with Seth Godin, who is sort of the master of, of right. all things marketing. And I've known Seth for a really long time. And, and uh, for those of you who don't know this story, the reason I actually wrote the book is because Seth told me I should write the book. Ah. Ah. So, uh, <laughs> and I said, okay, I will, uh, let me think on that, right? It took me a couple of years, but I did listen. So you helped make this monster. Pretty much for all, I met him in 2000. So I, you know, (laughs) there are all kinds of reasons that, that Seth is important in my life. But, um, I I would say this is that he said to me when I said, look, if somebody's listening to this and they want to get into marketing and they're early in their career, what do you recommend? And he said, go market. So he goes, go market for your Girl Scout cookies, for the PTA, for your sports team. So if you want to sell, like sell, whatever, you know, Krispy Kremes to go earn money for your kid's hockey team or basketball team or whatever, go sell, learn how to sell. If you want to give presentations, like go give presentations to a small group, to a bigger group, work for free, learn your craft, find your skills, hone your skills and find your way. And then you can say, okay, I actually do like that better. Um, and, And instead of putting so much pressure on yourself that you wake up every day and you're not happy, unfortunately, the averages are that most people are not. And and they don't get the opportunity to say, I love what I do every day. I love what I do every day. I, I feel blessed. You feel blessed. I sure do. So, you know, if you are struggling with what you're doing and you're trying to find your next path, uh, I would take that piece of advice. Whatever you think it might be is, you know, go try it, learn. And then if you really like it, one, then you got to figure out how do I get paid to do what I love doing? That's the trick. That's the win. That's the win. <laughs> or how do I keep doing what I'm doing part-time and how do I do what I really love part-time until I can get to a place where I can do what I really love full-time? Yeah. And, and I would say my last piece of advice is sure. to trust the process. Mm. Like if I knew, as I've said a number of times, <laughs> back when I was 30, what I know now, would I have done things differently? Absolutely. Yeah. But I didn't know what my end game was. I didn't know. Trust me, I never thought I'd write a book. Trust me, I never thought I'd work for Salesforce. Trust me, I never, I mean, you know, at the end, I wouldn't yeah. be on these lists that you mentioned. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. No way that I thought that that's what it was going to be. Maybe yeah. I thought that would be awesome, but I didn't know that each little thing I did was leading me closer and closer that's right. to an opportunity that Salesforce then creates a position for me, yeah. right? Um, and so I, I think there's a lot to be said for trusting the process. Well, Tiffany, I can't thank you enough for all your insights. This has been an incredible conversation. I, I really have enjoyed sitting across from Excellent. you and just well, thank absorbing you. everything yeah, that you have. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. I appreciate everything that you've given our audience today. Check us out at uncrushed.org. We are absolutely thrilled to be bringing experts like Tiffany to the table so that you can all learn what it is to be uncrushed, be somebody that is not daunted by the challenges of everyday life, career, goals, uh, family, and balance in general. Uh, I would love to hear your story. So check us out at uncrushed.org. Hit subscribe if this has been a helpful podcast for you, or even if you just found this insightful and interesting like I did. Uh, I don't think that there's a better podcast out there right now than 
Uncrushed and What's Next and Make It Happen Mondays and all these fantastic, insightful things that are being said in our community. So support us, support our guests, go follow Tiffany. She truly is a wealth of knowledge to be learned from. Tiffany, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. You're amazing. <laughs>